Welcome to the term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. My voice is just recovered in time for this podcast after uh, the big uh, World Cup victory against Iran <laughs> this week. <laughs> so I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, World Cup is not good for my podcasting career because I'm like losing it during every game. But in any event, yeah, <laughs> that's what's happening away from the Supreme Court in my life right now yeah i was definitely watching as well and i understand uh i, I probably didn't scream too much but uh you know thankfully uh but I'll yeah i have, have lots of tea with me well, well at least the next one is on saturday so we'll have lots of time to yes recover, exactly hopefully. um but let's turn to this week there was a lot of drama uh involving the court though outside the court um and specifically involving an allegation that Justice Alito was involved in a leak of uh, an opinion, specifically the Hobby Lobby opinion, back in 2014. Now, this is a bit of a, a complicated allegation. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to set us up and, and talk us through it? Yeah, I think that's probably helpful to do, just so we're kind of all on the same page um, with what we're talking about here. So, the week that we didn't record our podcast, the New York Times drops this kind of explosive story, as you say, tying Alito to this this alleged confidentiality breach in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case. Um, basically, the allegation comes from a former leader in the evangelical movement, um, a, a man named Rob Shank, who claims that he was given advanced notice of the Hobby Lobby decision by one of the donors to his organization who had just had dinner with Justice Alito the previous day. So he says that a woman named Gail Wright, who uh, frequently contributed to his um, uh, nonprofit group, basically told him after her dinner with the justice that she had found out that Justice Alito was the author of the decision in Hobby Lobby, which of course um, exempted religious corporations from having to comply with the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate, and that it was a victory for Hobby Lobby, which was fighting uh, having to comply with uh, that mandate. Um, Shank claims that he used that information to prepare kind of a public relations push in anticipation of Hobby Lobby's victory. He even says that he told um, an owner of the company about um, the, the, the impending result in the case. Uh, Shank has also included these allegations, not just you know in his um, communications with the Times, but also in a letter to the Supreme Court um, saying that it might be relevant to the court's ongoing investigation into the leak of the May um, draft in the Dobbs case. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now, and there's been continued fallout in the days after the publication of this story. Of course, Alito has since denied it. As you said, these are majorly explosive allegations, especially, you know, coming on the heels of the leak from last term with the Dobbs. Um, what does the court say? As you say, very explosive allegations, and in response to the story, two lawmakers who chair um uh, judicial oversight committees in, in the Senate and the House uh, uh, have have demanded an explanation from the court, um, asking whether there's been, you know, an investigation into these claims, asking whether uh, the Supreme Court will consider new ethical standards for justices, considering that, you know, unlike 
members of the lower federal courts and basically every other state court in the country, there is no binding ethical code on uh, justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, We got a letter that was made available by the court on Monday, and this came from uh, the Supreme Court's legal counsel responding to the concerns of these two lawmakers, saying that there's basically nothing to see here, and that Alito has denied uh, the allegations that he somehow, or he or his wife somehow told uh, these conservative uh, donors of the outcome in the Hobby Lobby case. Um, and uh, the, the legal counsel, the Supreme Court's legal counsel, also said that the, the woman in question, Gail Wright, who allegedly told our whistleblower here, Shank, um, about it, has also since publicly denied that this, this, this took place. Um, the, the quote that kind of stood out to a lot of people here is, quote, there is nothing to suggest that Justice Alito's actions violated ethics standards. Now, what the legal counsel um, in his letter did not uh, indicate was whether the court is investigating these claims at all or um, simply kind of just relying on the, the stated denials by the justice here. This is certainly going to be an ongoing story for us, I think, this term um, to see play out. Uh, but for now, let's turn to this week's arguments. The court heard four cases this week from Monday to Wednesday to kick off the November-December argument session. I want to start off with a pair of cases heard Monday involving the appeal of a pair of public corruption cases coming out of New York. These cases are Prococo versus U.S. and Simonelli versus U.S., um, where a top aide to former Governor Cuomo and a real estate developer were convicted of fraud and graft and just basically scheming to do bad things, right? Um, The big takeaway from Monday's arguments is that it looks like the justice may end up cinching in again federal prosecutors' abilities to pursue these kind of cases, which are kind of notoriously hard to prosecute to begin with. Um, Specifically, there is, I think, after Monday's argument, a real concern that the justices are going to strike down a key theory that prosecutors have been using to go after these kind of cases in recent decades. Okay, so definitely seems like part of a trend that we've seen at the Supreme Court lately. But um, Natalie, can you tell me about the theory that's at issue in this uh, case? At issue in one of the cases um, is the right to control theory of wire fraud. So, you know, wire frauds, this main way that prosecutors go after basically scheming to get money that's not yours to be taking, right? (laughs) Um, And this right to control theory holds um, that when a victim is deprived of potentially valuable economic information that is key to making their economic decisions and they suffer harm, then there's this liability and that you can use the federal wire fraud statute to go after them, right? Sounds, sounds fairly broad. Fairly broad. And, and this theory, it's at the center of the real estate developer case, one of the two cases heard on Monday. Uh, Louis Simonelli was convicted of conspiring to rig bids for state contracts connected to a program that aimed to invest $1 billion in state funds for Buffalo, New York real estate projects. Um, now, in the course of his conviction, the appeal of his conviction, the Second Circuit basically said his conviction could go forward and 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 their opinion turned on the argument that this theory is is at the basis of, you know, that by rigging these bids, Simonelli and others involved in the scheme, because there were other cases, um, deprived a nonprofit of the potentially valuable economic information to to do their job, basically, um, and to administer these projects. But the question is, you know, is this an economic loss? 
is like the deprivation of this, you know, information also an economic loss, which is really what's needed for wire fraud. Um, Simonelli's counsel is arguing it's not and that the Second Circuit's right to control theory is not quite right and doesn't rise to level of property fraud. Hmm. So nothing's being stolen, basically. That's the argument. Exactly. Exactly. Now, prosecutors, and this is kind of like the big thing, right, especially on Monday, prosecutors effectively conceded that the Second Circuit's right to control theory isn't quite right. They basically said, you're right, it's not quite landing. Um, but, they're, you know, they're countering that, you know, look, the evidence shows the bid rigging scheme um, did contemplate the deprivation of money. Um, and it's, you know, not just potentially valuable economic information. But it's kind of like a tough argument they're making. And it was definitely a weak spot that the justices from both the liberal and conservative wings of the court really seemed to challenge. Um, they seemed really perturbed, honestly. Justice Jackson noted that, you know, look, the jury convicted on the right to control theory. If that's not theory is not consistent with the law, neither is this conviction. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Justice Kavanaugh, he he also noted that, look, prosecutors have been pushing this right to control theory, right, for several decades, and many people have been convicted under it. You know, I'll just say, like, you know, there's been, I, I would say New York, New Jersey, but also pretty much uh, across the country, you know, a real effort by prosecutors to tackle public corruption, and they've used this right to control theory. Um, you know, but Justice Kavanaugh said, this is very problematic. I quote, this is very problematic to think back on the various cases that have been there over the years and then to, you know, come here in the bright light of this court for the government to then say, actually, you know, that theory doesn't hold up. Again, appreciate the candor. He was talking to the prosecutor. But looking back on the government pushing this theory all those years, it's not an ideal scenario. Yeah, definitely not an ideal scenario if you're sitting in prison after being convicted of a prosecutorial theory that the Supreme Court later held, holds to be, you know, a total overreach and that the, that the prosecutors themselves agree. Agreed. And, you know, I will say just based off our arguments from Monday, it definitely sounds like this theory is on thin ice. Um, so I, I think that was the biggest takeaway, right, from Monday's arguments. Let's move on to the second case now. What can you tell me about that one? Yeah, so the second case involved Joseph Prococo, a top aide to former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, he allegedly took $35,000 in bribes from a different developer um, to get them favors, you know, in Albany. Uh, now, this case involves honest services wire fraud, which, it, you know, covers when a public official is bribed to do some sort of favor and does that action. The hitch, though, is Prococo wasn't in a government role at the time that this allegedly happened because he'd stepped down to run Cuomo's re-election campaign. You know, again, this, I think, falls under this kind of really concerted effort by prosecutors to kind of push on the boundaries of existing laws to target public corruption cases, right? Um but justices, for, again, from both sides of the liberal and conservative wings on Monday, really questioned whether this was the right way to go about tackling that, you know, bribery issue, um, you know, and whether lobbyists and private citizens who wield, yes, significant influence in the halls of government, but are not part of the government, can be prosecuted under this law that was meant for government officials. Now, the lawyer arguing the case for 
the government, you know, made the argument that Prococo was operating essentially in the same exact role he had previously formerly held and that he was planning to return to his government role after the campaign. So he like wielded significant influence, right, as a, just a person in Albany. Um, but the justices did not seem, again, super inclined to be keen on that argument um, and, and really took issue with like the fact that he was not in a government role at the time. So it's not looking great for prosecutors on that conviction either. Wow. So, yeah, this is definitely going to be tougher. I mean, assuming that the results, uh, as they seem to be at arguments, hold going forward for prosecutors to use some of these existing wire fraud statutes to go after, um, you know, things like honest services fraud or right to control depriving economic information. I wonder if you even get maybe somewhere down the line some more specific statutes that 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 you know explicitly tell the prosecutors that they have the authority to go after this type of behavior because right now under the existing laws on the books it doesn't look like they will have that ability agreed and you know like i said earlier this is kind of one in a line of cases recently where the courts really have been kind of cinching in um, the bridgegate cases right and the yes. Uh, Bob McDonald uh, out of Virginia. I mean, yeah, it seems to be a big trend, no? Yeah, exactly. Definitely interesting cases to watch. Um, I want to turn now to Tuesday's arguments in the big immigration case this term, United States versus Texas. Uh, Natalie, I'm just going to give you kind of my top line here. And the Biden administration in this case is basically looking to reinstate a set of guidelines from 2021 for ICE officials about which removable non-citizens to target for arrest and deportation. Texas and Louisiana, Republican states, they sued over these new guidelines claiming that the the administration is basically uh, disobeying the commands about who to apprehend and deport that are inherent in immigration law and that in rolling out these guidelines, they violated the Administrative Procedure Act. So they were able to convince these two states, Texas and Louisiana, were able to convince a district court to vacate the guidelines nationwide and the Fifth Circuit then declined to stay that ruling. And so here we are. So that sets up Tuesday's arguments. So what's your read on how our arguments went for the administration? They went pretty badly for the administration, but they could still win. So that might sound a little bit uh, contradictory. But the reason is, or the reason I say that is because, um, you know, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, she she presented oral argument on behalf of the administration. And she made a variety of arguments. I, bet, I would say three principal arguments for why the Supreme Court should reinstate these guidelines for ICE officials about, you know, deportation priorities. But it was really difficult to kind of parse, you know, which justices were agreeing with which arguments and at the end of the day, whether the government would have enough based on the three independent arguments that they're making to even command a majority in the case. So maybe it would be helpful to just kind of like move one by one through the arguments that they're making. So the first principle so the first principle argument that the Biden administration's making is that Texas and Louisiana don't have standing to bring this lawsuit. They do not have a legal, uh, like a cognizable, you know, particularized, redressable, those are all the words that they use in standing doctrine, an injury from the rollout of these new guidelines for who ICE officials, who are, you know, part of the Department of Homeland Security, should target for arrest and removal. Um, Texas and Louisiana have 
based their standing claims on the idea that they're going to suffer economic harms from you know these social and health services that they're going to have to provide to you know removable non-citizens who as a result of these guidelines will not be targeted by ICE. Um, they also make the claim that uh, you know they, they say that they've put evidence into the record about um, incidences of recidivism among certain of these non-citizens who may commit yet further crimes and be forced to be held in prison in those states, which will then obviously cause them uh, economic harm. Now, the pre-logger basically said, look, these suspected injuries are far too attenuated, far too speculative um, to actually give rise to legal standing in an Article Three court um, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, they're far too off in the future and not directly, maybe they're indirectly, but they're not directly caused by um, these, these uh, new guidelines for ICE officials. That argument met a very frosty reception from Chief Justice John Roberts, who pointed out the fact that, you know, uh, uh, various Republican states made the same argument just a few months ago in the uh, remain in Mexico case about, you know, the asylum policy and that the government wasn't up there making the same standing arguments. He says, quote, I would have thought you'd have a little more concern about an opinion of ours that's four months old. I mean, it's not even out of the cradle yet and you're throwing it under the bus. So, <laughs> Oof. That's I think a, that's I, a yeah. tough one to, to, to argue back on from Prologer's standpoint. Yeah, I would say that she's probably not going to pick up Roberts on that argument. But let's just maybe move on to the merits of what Prelogger is saying. So on the merits of the case, um, Texas and Louisiana say that the guidelines improperly give discretion to ICE officials about whether to apprehend and remove categories of non-citizens. For instance, you know, those convicted of aggravated felonies. In the Immigration and Nationality Act, Congress made clear that these non-citizens, quote, shall be detained that's what the states say. There's no discretion here. These these are um, categories of non-citizens that need to be apprehended and removed and deported. Um, that's at least what the states say. And it's it's a it's a mandatory um, part of the immigration law. There's no room for um, these ICE officials to be setting their own you know or using their own discretion in, in who to target. Um, as so long as they you know check these certain boxes for whether or not um, they 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 qualify. Uh, now pre-logger representing the administration here it, it, it's 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 a little tricky so you know tell me if you tell me if you're following me pre-logger says that the ina's use of the word shall only applies to the context of detention so yes if a if if, if, if a qualifying non-citizen say with an aggravated felony is arrested in awaiting removal proceedings they must remain in detention during those proceedings but, Prelogger says, ICE officials still have the discretion over you know, who to prioritize for arrest. She says there's 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country, and ICE officials can't possibly apprehend all of them. So these new guidelines, she said, fit squarely within this context of prosecutorial discretion in the immigration context. Okay. So how did that argument fare with the justices? So I think on the merits, it was kind of a it was more of a partisan split. You had the three liberal justices who seemed to be totally on board, um, at least, you know, with the idea that these guidelines aren't running, you know, flagrantly up against the commands of the INA. But once again, you know, you had Chief Justice Roberts and a few of the other conservatives like uh, Kavanaugh and Alito, who seemed a little bit more skeptical. All right. Now, at the beginning of this now, you 
though, you said there were three arguments. So what was the third argument? So this was probably the most interesting part of the whole hearing here. So I mentioned the standing argument for why Texas and Louisiana don't have standing to challenge the guidelines. I mentioned the merits, why you know uh, the administration thinks it's right and that these guidelines don't violate immigration law. Well, there's actually a third argument that the government is making for why these guidelines should be reinstated. And that is the idea that the district court lacked the statutory authority under the Administrative Procedure Act to vacate these guidelines nationwide. Basically, the district court had read the language of the Administrative Procedure Act to find the authority to impose this nationwide vacature of this federal policy. The government says the APA does not give courts that authority. It only gives a court's the authority to, let's say, impose a declaratory judgment finding the policy unlawful, which would allow the government to continue to enforce the policy during litigation. It, uh, the government also says that you know the the courts are limited in the, in the sense of of vacating or setting aside a policy to um, the actual litigants in the case. So the government really comes out swinging against basically the entire idea that courts can impose a nationwide vacature on federal policy. Now, Natalie, you might be thinking like, wait, don't courts do that like all the time? Is the government really saying that like every time a court imposes a nationwide block on a federal policy that they're overstepping their authority? Is like, am I, am I, I reading say, your, your mind like, correctly there? Yes, or? you're reading my face <laughs> right now because like that happens all the time. <laughs> that happens all the time. That is exactly the reaction that the justices on the court were like. They were like, wait, you're not actually saying that courts can't impose nationwide vacatures in the Administrative Procedure Act context of federal policy, are you? And, and Prelogger was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And Chief Justice Roberts was like, he literally said, wow. He was like, wow, you know, if you're on the D.C. Circuit, you do that, I think he said something like, you do that five times before breakfast. <laughs> and so you have a situation on the Supreme Court, like several of the justices have direct personal experience doing exactly that as they sat on courts like the D.C. Circuit. And uh, just as Brett Kavanaugh, he sat on the D.C. Circuit for around like a dozen years. He called it an extreme position. He almost seemed to like take offense at Prelogger's contention that these judges had just not paid enough attention to the text or history of the APA in finding this authority. And he was like, I, I almost want to find like the, you know, the, the clip for you. But he's basically like, you know, when I served with uh, the late Judge uh, uh, Lawrence Silberman and, and Harry Edwards, like, yeah, we did. We did pay attention to text and history. And he was like, for you to come up here and make the that argument, I find, quote, pretty astonishing. So that was, he said it was pretty astonishing, almost like, how could you even have the gall <laughs> to present that argument? And Prelogger uh, was basically saying, like, look, you know, we don't think it it's ever too late to to get the text right in in the statute and it it just i don't know it, it was kind of surprising to see just because she rarely even in some of the most you know biggest cases that she's argued at the court whether it's Dobbs or some other big immigration case like she rarely gets you know put to the fire like that when she when when Prelogger made that argument so interestingly Gorsuch seemed to be buying it and he was like you know, like he was talking about when the APA was first adopted and he was like, 
all these administrative law scholars poring over the text of the, the draft legislation in the Administrative Procedure Act didn't point out that it contemplated nationwide vacatures of federal policy that just was like lost on all of them? And this was obviously a helpful question for the government. And so he seems to at least be seriously considering this proposition that the APA does not uh, like provide this kind of uh, broad, these broad nationwide remedies that a lot of these states like Texas and even during the Trump administration have been seeking. And, uh, you know, that's, on the one hand, it kind of surprised me because Gorsuch, as we've talked about many times, he's not a friend to federal agencies. He's not at all, right? He's the big anti-Chevron guy. He's the one that's always talking, railing against bureaucrats and everything like that. Well, I could think of no greater gift to, you know, the bureaucrats that he's often railing against than to say that courts lack the authority to impose nationwide bans on their policies. In any event, um, he, it turns out he has actually been um, kind of on this hobby horse for quite a while. And in a in an earlier decision, in an earlier concurrence, I was reading after the arguments. I remember that he was he's really. Um, hostile to the whole idea of the national injunction, the cosmic injunction, things that's, things they've totally gotten out of hand and kind of are way beyond the scope of federal judicial authority in the in the in the in the context of, of one of these policy or regulatory challenges. So that's why I say it's kind of one of the more interesting parts of the argument. Uh, so I wanted to kind of chew on that with you, but I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, interesting. It I feel like doesn't even cover it. Like Justice Gorsuch aside, and I, I get what you're saying there, but that was a wild swing from Perlocar, <laughs> I feel. Uh, like, I, I just, you know, from everything you've said, it it does not seem like she's going into the opinion-making process here on, on great grounds with the justices. But I know it's 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 probably more complicated than that. What, what do you think might happen here? Well, I think you're, I think it's probably safe to say, like, yeah, that 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 argument's not gonna it's not gonna get five votes. Or at least it's not gonna get five votes anytime soon. I would say Barrett, you know, she kind of seemed like more or less open to it. She was like, so if I agree with the guy she was talking to Texas, Texas's attorney, she said, you know, if I agree with the government on that argument, do you automatically lose the case? Which suggests he's at least entertaining the possibility of that argument. But like I said, it's not gonna be a majority decision. Now an interesting proposition to me is, you know, what if two justices kind of agree that the district court overstepped with this nationwide injunction, but, you know, that's the only ground on which they agree with the government on. And then you have three other liberal justices, let's say, agreeing with the government on the merits. I don't know. Maybe do you get like a, you get five justices in a majority, um, all concurring in the judgment, but no like prevailing rationale for why the government should win. This is one that's like far too complicated for me to even like predict how it's going to shake out. I'm I'm just really curious to see you know what ends up happening with this case. Definitely agreed. I I, I do worry this might be one of those like really tricky in part in part in part kind of opinion that we're going yeah, to yeah. write about. <laughs> yeah, especially under like you know a breaking news deadline where you get the yeah. opinion and you're scrolling to the result page and it's like you know. 600 words <laughs> yeah. like what did they hold what did they hold so yeah I, I, um definitely not gonna be fun but uh yeah natalie i think that about does it on arguments this week uh it's a big week coming up next week 
That's right. Monday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in 303 Creative LLC versus Alanis, where the justices will return to the question over whether religious business owners have a First Amendment right to refuse to provide services for same-sex ceremonies. We are planning a special episode after the argument, so listeners, please uh, watch your feeds, and hopefully we'll be there on on Monday evening, uh, if all goes as planned. Um, and then on Wednesday after that, uh, blockbuster, there's also a blockbuster showdown over the independent state legislator theory um, in a redistricting fight out of North Carolina. I know this is one we've really, you know, been watching. Conservatives are asking the court to adopt a legal doctrine that would strip state Supreme Courts of the ability to review rules for federal elections um, adopted by state legislators. So, you know, Again, big impact on on this one. Uh, in the meantime, though, we're also waiting to see whether the Supreme Court agrees to remove a key hurdle uh, for President Biden's student debt relief plan and lift a nationwide injunction on the program put in place by the Eighth Circuit. That shadow docket dispute, which we've talked about before, um, has been fully briefed and the court's expected to announce a decision at any moment. So we're recording right now on Thursday afternoon. So it is quite possible we'll be getting that opinion before this actually hits the airwaves, internet waves. What do we call this? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so just, you know, keep an, keep an ear out for that one. All right. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, additional reporting by Stuart Bishop, Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. 